Labor Day marks the unofficial start of campaign season, and a national study says West Virginia's election process is actually improving. This is Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Welcome to Viewpoint. I'm Ashton Mara. Today we talk presidential politics. Democrat Hillary Clinton holds her first press conference in 278 days, something her Republican opponent Donald Trump made sure to keep a tally up. That while Trump defends his ability to be the next commander-in-chief. A study from the Pew Charitable Trust shows West Virginia has made gains on their election performance index, and the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals hears arguments this week in a Kanawha County elections case involving a former Democratic state senator. Those stories coming up on Viewpoint. Political watchers say it's pretty clear West Virginia is well on its way to becoming a red state. In fact, this year's gubernatorial race could be the final step in the process that started at the very top of the ticket with presidential candidates more than two decades ago. The last time a Democrat won West Virginia's electoral votes was Bill Clinton in 1996. Republicans have little to fear when it comes to presidential politics in the state, though. The latest West Virginia poll shows Donald Trump with 49 percent of the vote. That's to Clinton's 31 percent. But across the country, the story isn't quite the same. Joining me to discuss the latest developments in the presidential race is Paige Lavender. She's the senior politics editor at The Huffington Post in Washington. Paige, thanks for being with us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Let's start with NBC's forum held last night in New York, where both candidates were asked to speak about national security and some other military issues. Both candidates appeared on the same broadcast, but separately. Trump took the stage first, so let's start with him. Yeah, Trump, uh, he was sort of classic Trump during the forum on NBC. Uh, You know, he said a lot of untruths, uh, things that he's repeated in the past. Most notably, he said again that he opposed the Iraq war uh, from the beginning when actually we know and he has made comments in the past that he supported the invasion in Iraq. So that's a flip that he's made. um, And he continues to insist that he opposed it from the get go. Um, So he did that last night. Um, He also remained really vague on any uh, sort of foreign policy plan he had for combating ISIS um, and he, you know, regularly attacked Hillary Clinton. That seemed to be his MO last night. And so it was a lot more of the same from Trump. That's what we see from him in most public appearances where he's not so controlled, not following a teleprompter. Uh, and so I wasn't really surprised at anything that happened on the stage yesterday. Clinton took the stage second. What did the audience get from her that was, was different than what they got from Trump? Well, Clinton actually presented some ideas, and that's really the biggest contrast between her and Trump generally in the campaign. Uh, She actually laid out a foreign policy strategy, uh, and beyond that, even, she tried to address and give answers to multiple questions about her emails and some of the other decisions she made as as Secretary of State, uh, things regarding Benghazi and stuff like that. Uh, So Trump, he just often speaks so often in generalities, you know, saying, I know last night one of the things he said was that he would maybe think about considering letting undocumented immigrants who serve in the military uh, remain as U.S. citizens. Uh, But that's sort of his thing. He will make this general statement that's like, yeah, well, I'll consider it. I'll think about it. That could happen. Uh, and, And later on, he can say, well, I never said that. I never definitively said yes or no about 
this thing that we were discussing. So Clinton actually comes out and she has actual strategy. Um, she seemed to be a lot more uh, measured in her responses um, and seemed to have a bit more of a plan laid out than Trump, who says he has a plan but won't really tell us what it is. <laughs> So this is something that we get a lot on the campaign trail from them, right? We get these kind of general ideas from Trump and these specifics from Hillary Clinton. You know, does it matter? Do the voters really want those specifics? I think some voters do. And I think with Clinton, that's really a defensive move on her part because she is so highly criticized for things that she's done in her career. I mean, her time as Secretary of State is regularly scrutinized, especially on the campaign trail, whereas Trump you know, goes out there and says, you know, I'm a businessman, I've made a good business. And in in reality, his business history is not that stellar. Um, He actually has a pretty rocky past with his business endeavors. Uh, So I think that this is a way for Clinton to say, you know, I'm taking this very seriously. Here are the exact things that I want to be doing. Um, And and it does invite a little more scrutiny. And maybe people don't care. I mean, maybe your average voter, uh, you know, doesn't, care so much about how we're going to combat ISIS, but it is the kind of thing that matters to all Americans. So I think that uh, it's it's good to be a little specific. So another development from the Clinton camp this week, Trump's campaign has been keeping this tally since the, les- the, since the last time that she did a press conference re- with reporters. Today was day 278, I think, and she broke the trend in North Carolina this morning, right? Yes, that's right. She had a press conference uh, as she was about to board a plane and kind of following up on the things she said during the NBC forum. And so this press conference happens with Clinton's new campaign jet in the background, which her press corps was invited to start traveling with her this week on that jet. Do these kinds of things, the number of press conferences, um, the fact that the press corps is on the same plane with her and she did, you know, she had the event earlier this week where she walked back and actually talked to them, answered some questions. In the grand scheme of this campaign, do things like that really make a difference? I definitely think so. Obviously, I'm probably a little bit biased about this as a member of the press. Um, And I do think that the press has a certain responsibility to force candidates and and politicians generally to answer questions. You know, it's the media's job to dig up the dirt and to do the exploring, you know, dig through files, contact people from from these lawmakers past uh, and, and come forth with these stories that make them, the lawmakers and the politicians want to respond. But Without easy access to Clinton or any other candidate, uh, the narrative that they have is so controlled by the campaign that it can be hard to get a raw, truthful look at what a person's policy positions are or what their general genuine thoughts are on any given topic. Um, so I think that what it really boils down to is that it's all about transparency. And any politician who genuinely cares about what their constituency thinks Uh, should be really transparent about their views and honest with the public. And an easy way to do that is to regularly interact with the press. I want to talk a little bit about a poll that came out this week from the Washington Post. It shows that Trump has made gains since the conventions earlier this summer. Coming out of the the Democratic National Convention, Clinton took this strong lead, and that's slowly been shifting, which is, you know, to be expected. What's interesting about the Washington Post survey of voters, though, is that it appears to show Trump getting a boost in places like the Midwest, where there's a large number of white voters, but voters who typically go Democrat. And then it shows him struggling in what are traditionally thought of as red states, places like Arizona, Georgia, Texas. Can you talk to us about why this is significant? 
Yeah, and first, I would say up front that uh, you should never panic about the polls. We actually have, that's not coming from me, we have a team of people at the Huffington Post. Um, They're called HuffPost Pollster, and I highly encourage anyone to check out their work. Um, But those reporters that we have, they actually write a piece every month or so telling people, like, don't freak out if you see this poll, because the polls do change so often. Um, what's important to look at when you're reading polls is the averages. And we have that on the Huffington Post if you want to go. This is a plug for the website, but if you want to go check it out, we have this poll, uh, this tool that if any race has you know more than five national polls, it shows you what the average of those polls are. And that's really the number people should be looking at. Um, but if, you, if people are looking at any one poll, um, it's important to look at how it was conducted, and I would tell people who are sort of like looking into these polls that are coming, um, you know, they're coming fast now after Labor Day. This is a big polling season. Uh, but just make sure when you're reading into a poll, you can find some basic info on how it was conducted and who sponsored it and how the data was collected. If that kind of stuff isn't really transparent, it's not a poll that I would necessarily trust. Um, so with that all being said, it's totally natural that we've had these recent shifts in the polls. Um, the the lead that you mentioned Clinton had after the convention, I mean, every candidate gets a post-convention bump. Um, I feel like this year, you know, those maybe lasted a little longer than they have in the past, especially in Clinton's case. But I don't really find those fluctuations too surprising. Um, and then, you know, with the with the red states you mentioned, there's there's definitely a sense of change this year in some of those states and in the med- Midwest with, you know, white Democratic voters. Uh, I definitely think that we're seeing people, you know, shift their opinions a bit. And I think a lot of that is because we have two candidates that a lot of people find to not necessarily be the most desirable. So I think we are going to see things change a little bit this year, but um, I don't know that we're going to see any radical changes um, on Election Day. So West Virginia has pretty clearly made the shift from its tradition of being a Democratic stronghold to being a Republican voting state. Uh, I mentioned earlier the latest poll that shows Trump has the lead here by 18 points, and that's pretty big, you know, all things aside about polls themselves, though. But as we watch Trump struggle in, in some other parts of the country in these traditionally Republican places, does winning West Virginia become more important for him, or is the state really just too small to make that much of a difference in the end? The thing is, is when you're looking at the nation and you're looking at the number of votes each state has. West Virginia technically is small. We don't have as many electoral votes as California or or any place like that. Um, But the thing, the reason West Virginia and other states are so important for a candidate like Trump is because it's pretty much a guarantee for him. I mean, he's leading so, so vastly in the state uh, that he can count on those votes being there. And that's really going to shape his strategy in other states. I actually think the New York Times has Trump, uh, predicted to win guaranteed 117 electoral votes, um, which isn't enough to win the presidency. And so, you know, he's going to look at the votes that he thinks are pretty much a guarantee, including those in West Virginia, where he's leading by so much, as you mentioned. Um, And then he's going to, like, look at those in-between states or the states that are leaning a little bit toward Clinton, but maybe he could swing over his way. And that's going to frame how he shapes his campaign strategy over the next few months. So I definitely think West Virginia is important to him, uh, but maybe not so much in the way that seems obvious to everyone. It's not like a swing state, but it's still a pretty pivotal um, thing to his campaign. Aside from that, though, I really hate it when anyone says a state is too small or people's votes aren't as important. Uh, and, And Trump actually said that when he visited West Virginia earlier this year, and I was 
appalled because it's just an anti-American way of thinking. You know, Trump wants to make make America great again, and he was telling people in West Virginia, don't worry about going to vote in the primary. Like, it's all wrapped up here. And it's not just about Trump, and it's not just about Clinton. There are so many other races, and it's so important for Americans to exercise their right to vote uh, that I would hope that anyone who is following this election would recognize that there are state and local lawmakers that really need their votes too. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you should go, you know, exercise your right um, and vote all the way down the ticket for, you know, do your homework and, and make sure you know who you support. Um, but yeah, like I would never tell anybody to think of West Virginia as too small because I don't want them to be discouraged to go vote. And, and it's really important that everybody get out there in November. I think there are plenty of West Virginians who are happy to hear you say that. <laughs> so next steps here, we're heading toward the first presidential debate at the end of September. How important are these? I think they're very important. Uh, there are a lot of voters in this country who have not been following this, ele- this uh, election race as closely as probably you or I have been following it. Um, I mean, I can tell you so many random facts about candidates that aren't around anymore that it just drives me crazy. But for a lot of people, they haven't really thought much about, you know, Clinton's foreign policy ideas or like Trump's thoughts on trade. And it doesn't seem, it may not seem like those things matter to everybody, but they really do. And when you're choosing a candidate, you should, you know, take everything into consideration. Um, So these debates are going to be a chance for Clinton and uh, Trump to both really present themselves to the general American people for the first time. Um, and so it's going to be the most public platform that they've had. It's going to be prime time on television. It's going to get wall-to-wall news coverage. Um, so everything they say there's going to be really and truly important. And it's going to be, you know, I think we're going to hear a lot of uh, stump speech type statements from them. You know, things that as political reporters, we've probably heard them say a million times in the last few months. But I think it's going to be a new thing to a lot of people. So it's really important that they grasp that. Um, And I'm also just super interested personally to see how they interact with each other just because, you know, they've had these town halls and these forums where they've appeared separately, but they haven't appeared on stage together yet. And especially with someone like Trump, you know, he can either be extremely sedated and, you know, sticking to the teleprompter, sticking to the script, or he can be completely unhinged and just like making these statements that are so wild and unruly. Um, And I'm kind of interested to see how he goes at Clinton because, uh, as we saw in the primaries, his attacks on other GOP candidates either were massively successful and sort of like hit at this place in the conservative electorate that was just like a sweet spot for people or or he had these attacks that just failed terribly. So it's going to be really interesting to see if he soars or just flames out and and how Clinton's going to react to all of that. West Virginia native Paige Lavender is a senior politics editor with the Huffington Post. Paige, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This is Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Joni Deutsch, assistant producer for Mountain Stage with Larry Gross, one of the shows produced by West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Consider Mountain Stage the musically inclined, older sibling of the younger, politically savvy podcast, Viewpoint with Ashton Mara. If you're listening to Viewpoint, 
It's a pretty safe assumption that you like podcasts. You trust West Virginia Public Broadcasting, smart, responsible coverage of the election cycle, and you care about West Virginia and our nation's future. It takes a team to make this program happen. And that's why we're asking you right now to join our family of music fans, political junkies, and West Virginia storytellers during our membership campaign. Call 1-800-RADIO-87 with a pledge in any amount. Or since you're obviously listening on some web-enabled device, just go to wvpublic.org and click the Donate button there. And thanks. You're listening to Viewpoint. I'm Ashton Mara. The West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals heard oral arguments in a Kanawha County elections case Wednesday. The case centers around a former Democratic senator who's attempting to get on a local ballot as an independent. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Ann Lee reports. Next case up for argument under Rule 20, Eric Patrick Wells versus The five Charles justices Miller. of the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals heard arguments as to whether former state senator Eric Wells can be placed on Kanawha County's general election ballot as an independent running for county clerk. Wells, a registered Democrat, did not decide to run until after May's primary, missing the opportunity to run as a major party candidate. So this summer, he collected more than a thousand signatures for a petition to be placed on the November ballot as an independent candidate, even though he never changed his party affiliation. Wells attorney Tom Maroney argued Wednesday that the case is a ballot access issue, that the voters who signed his petition should be allowed to have the candidate of their choice on the ballot. It's, it's a situation where a group of voters said, this is the candidate that we want because we want to associate with this particular candidate, and it's the ballot access under the First and Fourteenth Amendments here in this state that the voters have the right to have on the ballot a candidate that espouses their political thoughts or their social views. Ballot access cases are not situation. new to the Supreme Court. In the 1980 case West Virginia Libertarian Party versus Manchin, the court ruled that the state cannot place an undue burden on third-party candidates attempting to use the petition method to get on a ballot. Those hurdles, the court ruled, infringed upon candidates and voters' right to free speech under the First Amendment. But Miller, the Kanawha County prosecuting attorney, argued in front of the justices that this wasn't a ballot access issue, but an issue of following the election's laws and procedures the state has the authority to put in place. He pointed out that since no Democrat is running for the Kanawha County clerk's seat anyway, Wells could have also made it onto the ballot with a vote by the county Democratic Executive Committee or simply named the candidate by the committee's chair. Wells, however, missed those deadlines as well. Mr. Wells had every opportunity to get on the ballot in the proper way in accordance with the rules. And the, the cases are legion that indicate that states have the right to pass laws that reasonably regulate the conduct of elections. Miller argued that a ruling in Wells' favor could mean that anyone could run for less than noble reasons. You know, a, a candidate in one of the major parties could not uh, file in the primary, uh, could lure the opposition into a false sense of security, and then jump out of the weeds toward the uh, end of the, of the uh, filing period prior to August the 1st and come out and get on the ballot. 
and in, in Mr. Wells' case, not even changing their registration. It isn't it clear when the justices will make a ruling, but with the upcoming elections, the court has said it will expedite the case. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Ann Lee. In 2010, the Pew Charitable Trusts began working with researchers at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, to find a way to measure how well elections are administered in each state. They came up with the Election Performance Index, or EPI, a comprehensive assessment that's based on 17 indicators, things like the number of military and overseas ballots a state receives, the number of provisional ballots cast in an election, the number of voters who are registered in a state, and the number that actually turn up to the polls. The EPI measures data back to the 2008 election and allows states to compare themselves to one another. The latest EPI, which measures 2014 election data, shows West Virginia is actually improving the way it administers its elections. MIT researcher Charles Stewart has been part of the Pew Project since the very beginning and joined me to discuss this year's results. Um, the purpose of the Elections Performance Index really is to measure um, the overall um, administrative performance of elections in every state in the United States. The idea really is um, to think about elections as being um, organized around registering voters, um, getting them to the polls, and then counting the votes. And it's also related to making those um, processes both convenient and safe and secure. So the 17 indicators um, together that make up the index are intended to provide a summary measure of how well states administer the nuts and bolts of elections and how that changes over time and how states um, compare to each other. Where does the data come from that you all use to rate states on their election performance? Uh, another number of sources, the most basic data or at least the largest amount of data comes from the um, Elections Assistance Commission, the United States EAC, which um, conducts every two years something called the EAVS, the um, Election Administration and Voting Survey. Um, that survey asks states um, and actually the localities within states a large number, um, well over a hundred different questions um, about the process. Things like how many voter registration forms did they process, how many um, voters turned out to vote. So the EAVS um, um, contributes probably two-thirds to three-quarters of the indicators that go into the EPI. The next um, major source of data for the EPI comes from the U.S. Census Bureau. Every two years it conducts a very large um, survey of Americans right after the November election where it asks people whether they had registered and if they were registered, whether they had turned out and voted. So it's a wide variety of things, but mostly um, the data come from official sources. So when we look at the election performance index, the measurements for all of the states, how is West Virginia doing? Well, West Virginia actually um, did much better in um, 2014 than it, than it did in 2010. Overall, in 2010, um, West Virginia was near the bottom, actually, in the overall average. And um, by 2014, it had risen up to right in the middle of the pack um, in terms of the overall score. First of all, um, West Virginia was one of those states that did much better 
in um, getting data from localities in order to even do the, do the judging uh, or do the assessing. And then the second thing is that West Virginia um, got much, much better over the last four years in getting um, absentee ballots back and then having them accepted when they were returned. But still, you say West Virginia is kind of in the middle of the pack overall. What can we do better? Where and how can the state improve? I would say that the primary area in which West Virginia has the biggest room to improve has to do with um, registration and turnout. And I'll quickly um, add that I believe West Virginia, since the publication of the EPI for 2014, um, has instituted a, an online voter registration, so has actually taken a step in making registration easier. That's MIT political science professor Charles Stewart, a researcher with the Pew Charitable Trust's EPI, Election Performance Index. This has been Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Special thanks this week to Paige Lavender, Ann Lee, and the Pew Charitable Trusts. We'll be back next week with our first dive into West Virginia's gubernatorial election race, an interview with libertarian David Moran. When I talk to the rank and file as I'm walking around this state, they are saying to me things like, oh, thank goodness you're running, because I'm not really happy with the current situation. Viewpoint is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting and is available at wvpublic.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at ViewpointWV. I'm Ashton Mara. We'll see you next week.